Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. Hello, this is episode 74, and I'm your host, Chris Sands. Right now we're in uh, outside of Baltimore at the Guinness Open Gate Brewery and Barrel House with brewmaster Peter Weens. Thank for uh, thank you for spending some time with us. Peter. Of course, yeah. It was um, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time to be able to sit down and talk to you. So I guess first, let's just um, how did you get into brewing? Well, when, when I was in in the mid '90s, when I was in college, um, my cousin was lab manager for Mad River Brewing Company up in um, Humboldt, and so he introduced me and several other members of my family to. Uh, to the beers that they were making, to craft beer, and kind of spurred our interest, and we got interested in in the, the idea of, of opening up a brew pub. And so, at that time, I was I was at Cal Poly Pomona, I was studying landscape architecture. Um, I had gone to Davis before that and studied um, bio sci, a little bit of engineering stuff like that. And I knew Davis had a brewing program. So what my thought was, well, if I want to open up a brewery, then Let's uh, learn how to make beer. So I started home brewing with with some of the other members of my family, and uh, changed my major. Went back up to Davis, studied fermentation science, got my bachelor's degree, um, and uh, after that came out of school. Short career in the wine industry. So I worked for Robert Mondavi down in Woodbridge as a as an operator. Um, after I got my bachelor's, I was thinking that I would go back to school for brewery design, um, more like a master's of food engineering. And uh, kind of to bridge the gap between when I got my master, when I got my bachelor's to when I was going to go back to school, I went to work for Mandavi. Decided that getting a paycheck was better than spending money, spending more <laughs> money on education. Um, so I, I went to uh, left Mandavi and went to work at Budweiser. So the what does a master of food science entail? Well, since I never actually did mine, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it. Uh, I I do have some friends that that did the masters of uh, of food science up there. My plan was to work with with Charlie Bamforth and do a masters of food science or food engineering actually. So focusing on brew house design and brewery design, um, which kind of turns out that I ended up doing a lot of that in my career without having to go through that schooling. So like they'll actually have classes teaching the proper way to design a brew house, or is it just? It would be more other education that would be applicable to it. Correct. Yeah. More, okay. more specialized. There's a lot of food engineering, chemical engineering, fluid flow, dynamics, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and then you'd have a senior project or not a senior project, but a research project or a paper that you'd have to do. All right. So then you went on to work for Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. I started in uh, the pilot brewery um, in St. Louis. I was there for about a year. Uh, Ten barrel system that we had there it was a lot of fun. Um it's funny to think of Anheuser Busch as having has a ten barrel system. Yeah, it, I mean, was, it makes complete sense, but it's just weird to like that the scale that they brew to think that somewhere they have a ten barrel system that they're using. Yeah, there's there's a lot of innovations that come out of there, um, but also a lot of raw material um, evaluations. So uh, we did a lot of different things. We made a lot of new brands. We made um, a, you know with all the different hops that Budweiser uses. We had to do single hot buds and stuff like that. And we had a lot of fun um, as well. We didn't make a lot of beer. We didn't sell any of the beer. Um, but we still had the opportunity to try out some new things and, and learn how to brew the Budweiser way. 
the Anheuser-Busch way. So you said evaluate new products. So is when they would get in like maybe a new supplier, is that how, how they would test out the... Well, each, each crop year, you know, you have to evaluate the hops. Um, we'd also do malt trials, malt crop year trials, new malt varieties or new barley varieties, stuff like that. Um, and then new products. Okay. We did, we did a few new products. That's cool. Yeah. That's one thing people always say, like if there's one thing about Anheuser-Busch, it's that the quality, the consistency and the, the knowledge with brewing is surpasses everywhere. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it, um, you know, I don't know, wouldn't say that if it sur- surpasses anywhere, but it is very, very difficult to make a beer across 12 sites in the U.S. that tastes consistent every time you drink it. You yeah. Know, from, from year to year, batch to batch, brewery to brewery. And so to get that consistency, we had to do a lot, you know, because crop years are different, growing conditions are different, the yeast is different. We had to do a lot of research and we had to do a lot of trials to make sure that we could tweak parts of the process to make sure the beer tasted the same, even with slightly different changes in raw materials so the did you spend your whole 10 years there or did, or did you uh, hold other jobs with them yeah so i was there for a year in st louis and then i moved to los angeles um so i was a, a supervisor in the fermenting department and then in the the brew house in los angeles and from there i was promoted up to fairfield where i was in maintenance um, and that was a great experience in fairfield because that's when we put in a new brew house so we put in two new kettles and a new ladder ton Got to start that one up and then back to Los Angeles where I was in finishing cellar. So the filtration cellar ran that cellar for uh, about a year and a half, started working on another project there, which was a modernization. Um, the big finishing cellar modernization started working on that before I became the assistant brewmaster of the brew house and fermenting. And there I got to work on more projects. Um, I did that for five years, I believe. Uh, from there, I kind of did a stretch out of brewing. Um, so I, I took over as business manager. And so what that was, was I had logistics, warehouse and accounting and the storeroom. And so it was an opportunity for me to kind of learn the other side, you know, the shipping side. And I got to be a little bit more involved in packaging um, and especially with logistics and, and how much money there is in logistics and how much savings there could be yeah. in logistics and that sort of thing, just optimizing that process. And also with budgeting and, and, you know, all the, the initiatives that we had and cost savings and stuff like that for accounting. That was a lot of, a lot of interesting things we did. I uh, did that for a year and then I went into quality. So I was QA manager for a year. So I had the quality department for the whole site. So one, it sounds like the, your time spent at Anheuser-Busch was basically an entire education on every aspect of how to Work, yeah. almost do everything with inside of a large room yeah, operation. It was pretty close. Yeah, I did everything but run a can line. So we had, and I didn't run a, a big bottle line. You know, we had uh, four big fillers in Los Angeles, but I didn't, I wasn't actually running the line. Um, other than the small, I think it was a 12 head filler we had in the, in the pilot brewery, we got to run that one. Um, yeah, I, I had some experience with cans from the quality standpoint and from the logistics, um, but not actually running the can line. The, the and the brewery that you worked at with opening, how large of a brew house was that? Uh, which one? At the the one that you worked at with. Uh, oh, in Fairfield. Yeah, Fairfield. Sorry. Um, I have to think back to how big that. I believe it was in the six hundred barrel range for the for batch size. So the one we had in Los Angeles, we had two brew houses, 
Uh, one was about 600 barrels. The other one was about 890, I think. So pretty good size. So while the one here is humongous, it's kind of tiny compared to yeah, those compared to, ones. Compared to what we had there, for sure. The 100 hectoliters or 85 barrels is not... Yeah, there's little babies. Scale. Yeah. <laughs> so um, once you left Anheuser-Busch, what did you do then? So my, my brothers own a winery. And uh, we started the winery in 2001 um, after I was came back from St. Louis. We opened that up. And it was around the same time that I started my home brewing experience with some of the other members of my family. My brother, uh, Doug, he bought a, a plot of land to plant vineyards on. So I also got, while I was in college, I got to help him plant vineyards. And we made some of the first batches of wine in his garage. And so they had their winery that they moved to Temecula. And I think it was 2005 or 2006. And they wanted to get into brewing. Um, so I went down there to work with them and, and, uh, my nephews and start a brewery. So I started up Weens Brewing with my family in Temecula. I did that for about a year and a half. So I got them up and running and, uh, looked to the next challenge and went to stone. So at Weens, I got to do everything, um, you know, working with them. I didn't spend quite as much time in the, in the tap room management end of it, but I did dabble in that a bit. I did some deliveries. I did some line cleaning draft line setups, brewing, packaging, you know, construction almost. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun, a lot of work, but a lot of fun. It's an, And I was telling you right before we started, it's crazy when I was looking up, a, <clears throat> just to get a little bit of background of you, I discovered when I was in Temecula in 2013, I'd actually visited that brewery, which that was kind of weird of yeah. all places that I would have gone <laughs> to. Uh, although, I mean, I imagine it's probably even more packed, but when I was there, I think we, within like a five mile, five mile radius, there's like 10 breweries in Temecula that we went to. Yeah. I haven't been back down there in a while, but, um, I know, you know, refuge was open right across the street from us. Iron fire was down the street. We had aftershock. Um, since then electric brewing has opened up and some of these other guys, I think iron fire and, um, uh, craft from Lake Elsinore, they're opening up taste rooms in Old Town Temecula, which is kind of the neat thing about California is you can have one license and you can op open up satellite tasting rooms, which is something you can't really or you can't do at all here in Maryland. Yeah, in uh, Pennsylvania, they allow that too. You can have, I think, up to five locations on the same license. Yeah, I think it's similar in, in California, I believe. Yeah, I liked uh, Iron Fire had a jalapeno ale that I loved because it had really strong jalapeno flavor, but almost none of the heat. Oh, yeah, I'm, they... I'm not big on the um, really hot beers. Yeah, they also made one that if you were a fan of really hot beers, you would have loved it. They had a, I think it was a ghost pepper they put in one beer. It was just, it was hot, Yeah, really hot. I, I can only make it through like a half a bottle of habanero scalpin. scalpin yeah, could, yeah like, I'm with you. Not into the carbonated heat. Yeah, I love spicy peppers. I love spicy food. Yeah, so do I. I but it's I just something when beers. you add carbonation yeah. into there, my my stomach does not enjoy that. Yeah, the the scene down in Temecula is really growing. You know, I think kind of spilled over a little bit from San Diego County. There's a lot more breweries. I think there's a lot more breweries now than there even were, you know, two months ago or three months ago, I bet. But uh, a lot of good beer coming out of there as well, you know. So when you first started at Stone, what were you doing there? I started off as, uh, what was my title? Project management. Basically, I was working on um, process improvement stuff, um, primarily on the cold side, on the filter side. 
did that for a couple of months before I started working on the design of the Richmond plant with uh, some of my other colleagues that were there. And uh, so going through the whole design process of we had to select a vendor for the brew house. We had to select the vendor for the for the sellers um, first, you know, and then getting into, um, you know, they asked me before we had a location, they asked me if I would be willing to move east to build a, to run the brewery, basically help build it and run it. And so I, of course, said yes, because, you know, to have an opportunity like that was amazing. It was, yeah. it was huge. Um, I don't even think I let Mitch get the sentence out of his mouth before I said <laughs> yes. But it was a great experience to work, you know, first to work with Mitch. I jumped at that opportunity. I got to know him a little bit um, while I was at Budweiser, actually, through the Master Brewers. And then um, he lived just around the corner from me. And so he used to come into Weens, and we chatted up over there. And then uh, was lucky enough that, you know, he found a spot for me at Stone and uh, agreed to, or came up with the idea for me to move to the East Coast. So we built that brewery in Richmond. Uh, it was on a, basically just a field, you know, so we built the building and there wasn't a huge team of us that built it. And so I did a lot of the coordinating, you know, with, with a lot of the rest of the team. We, we kind of split up all our duties. There's really five of us from the Stone side that built it. So we couldn't have a lot of checks and balances. We just had to do it. Yeah, that um, seems like a for <laughs> how large that project was. That yeah. seems like a really small team to. Yeah, it was. It was, but it was really good. We worked. We all worked really well together. Um, so it was. Uh, you know, Tommy's still there. Uh, Tom Molina, he's still there. Uh, and Bill McAvoy, he's moved on to um, Carl Strauss. Randy's still at Stone. He's the construction manager. He's in, based at Escondido. He's doing. Napa and uh, some of the other bistro projects and then CJ he went with Mitch down to New Realm so CJ built the New Realm breweries for Mitch brewery for Mitch and the next one when when uh, Mitch builds another one CJ will build that one too but it was it was a ton of fun it was a lot of work it was a lot of fun um, learned a lot of things I learned more than I ever wanted to know about underground piping and drainage uh -huh. um, and then uh, it was a lot of fun to start that place up and and work through all the flavor matching and all that stuff that we had to do with with IPA with delicious arrogant bastard and rotation also got to build the team there which I think is probably what I'm most proud of uh, it was a great team of, of people that worked there um, had my hands in hiring all of them which was good and it was it was it took a long time to build the team out like that but it was you know the most important thing we could do is make sure that we had a, a team of people that worked really well together and um, it was it was kind of you know, mixed emotions that I left for sure because I built this beautiful brewery. Uh, Stone's a great company, a lot of great beer, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to come up here and, and do it again for Guinness. Yeah. Um, before we get move on to that though, it, the is it a lot harder to match the type of beers that Stone is making as opposed to Anheuser Busch, where so you said, like, no matter where you get the beer from with Anheuser Bush, it tastes the same. Mm -hmm. Has Stone reached that point where, or are they brewing different beers at each location? I think there's some that are slightly different in Berlin, but the recipes are the same in Richmond as they are in Escondido. And the goal is to have those beers taste the same. So that was a challenge because um, different brewing system, different brew house, different kettles. Uh, so that was one different water supply you know in terms of the calcium to to chloride and magnesium to sulfate ratios um 
and then different fermenter geometries, different fermenter sizes, which uh, and different dry hops and, and dry hop tank and recirculation kind of geometries that, that really impacted the flavor. And so the biggest thing that hurdle that we had was um, the dry hop aroma. And so what was interesting was we we have in Escondido this recirculation that we would do on the dry hop. So we built that into the Richmond facility with a few modifications. And we found out that we were actually recirculating too well, for one thing. <laughs> um, we have a, a actually flashing off some of the hop aromas during the recirculation. And then we tweaked our filter a little bit to kind of uh, coarsen it up because it was too tight. So it was it was filtering the beer too cleanly. So it was pulling out, stripping out some of those hop aromas. And then um, we also saw a big impact on, on the hop aroma with the yeast and the yeast viability, the yeast health. So that's something that a lot of breweries struggle with um, is, is how to keep your yeast healthy and how to keep your yeast happy. And something that still there's a lot of research going on. There's a lot of people looking at how does that yeast interact with, with the hop aromas or with the hop compounds and how does it kind of free up some of those hop aromas. So where we get a pretty good intensity sometimes on our hop aroma, we wouldn't get quite the same fruity character. Um, you know, for delicious, it was a little more herbal, a little less lemony. And so just trying to match that, that one and, and enjoy by. So last I heard was that the team in Richmond has, has done well, and they're actually right on par with, with Escondido and everybody's happy with the, with the, with the aroma that they're getting out of the beer, which is good. So it, that, so that does that make that those types of beer, are they harder to match to keep consistent or is it just no matter what, it's hard to keep that I think it's, consistency. it's no matter what. Um, the only one that we really didn't struggle with was Arrogant Bastard, which is the one that we thought we would struggle with a lot because of the dark malts. Um, I think it's tricky no matter what the beer is, but if it's a lighter flavored beer, then you have, you have less to hide. You don't have the dry oh, yeah. hops to hide the flaws, but at the same time, the dry hop, if you're really picky about your dry hop and your dry hop aroma, then yeah, it is tough. So that they didn't hold it against you that you spent 10 years brewing yellow fizzy beer? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, for sure not. It's funny like that they often have that refrain, but I, I imagine like where they're at now and what you were able to do for them having that there's no way you would have been a, like they would need someone with the experience and what you learned working for Anheuser-Busch to be able to yeah I, th I think that was definitely helpful and it wasn't you know it wasn't just me there was Mitch who who had a longer career at Bud than I did uh, Joel Grosser who's there in Escondido he's now the vice president of brewing he and I actually started together in the pilot brewery in St. Louis um I started in May and I think he started in August or September or something like that. So he had 12 years or more. I think he actually had 14 years, 13 or 14 years at Bud. And then we also hired, you know, like I said, Thomas Molina down in, in Richmond. He, he and I worked together. He started in, in Los Angeles. I trained him in the brew house. So there's, there's a history. And then now they also have Tom Tweedy who was at Bud in quality that I worked with him. So there's a, basically a, a history of, of Anheuser-Busch. Uh, folks that took their experience and came down to stone to to help them reach the next level the next plateau and i think that's a lot it's like that all, along a lot of all, at a lot of other breweries too so then that brings us to where we currently are where um and from what i understand you've actually 
dreamt of working for Guinness for a long time? Or I did, yeah. So um, I celebrated my 21st birthday with a couple pints of Guinness. Um, I also, and with my uh, Ben Weens, who's now he's running the Weens Brewing out there. So he and I went out and uh, had Guinness on my 21st birthday. When I was in college studying brewing, I told my wife that I wanted, she wasn't my wife at the time, but I told her that one of my dreams was to go work for Guinness. And so when this opportunity, I heard about this from, it actually came from Charlie Bamforth. So I called up Charlie and asked him, you know, because I knew that he had experience working with, with Guinness and Diageo. I asked him some questions and, you know, tell me about the culture, tell me about the, the company. He didn't have anything that to say that was negative. He had a lot of positive things to say. And, and uh, more I met people, the more I chatted with people about who worked here, the more excited I got, especially with the opportunity to be in the innovation side that we have here, the 10-barrel system, uh, starting up the two-barrel system, and then the 100-hack system. You know, I think it's it's an amazing opportunity. It's going to be a lot of fun. It already is a lot of fun, but it's even going to be even more fun when we get our 10-barrel system up. Well, yeah, because right now it, it's still, while it's open, there's only a test tap room, but, like, it's really still in its infancy of what this location is going to become. Exactly, yeah. And we started the, the two-barrel very unsophisticated. You know, if you, if you want to put it that way, we don't have a lot of... of uh, there's no automation on it, basically. You know, it's a very manual brewery, and it's um, we don't have a lot of of lab equipment set up yet. We have a rudimentary lab, but as we get to ten barrel up, as we get more lab capabilities, um, we get more yeast capabilities, we get more propagation capabilities. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's probably kind of weird brewing now. Like looking forward to where like I, I would assume a Guinness brewery in a facility like this is going to have a state of the art quality control lab. So now it's like you're almost working as a small startup brewery. To, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was good for, you know, to, to draw on the experience that Holly and I had um, for me at Weens and Holly at Stone and then at Highland um, of working on these smaller systems already drawing on that experience and, and being creative and problem solving and how can we get things done and how can we, how can we measure it without, um, without having a lot of those resources in place. Um, and I think we've been, we've been pretty successful. I've been very happy with all the beers that we've had. I think the feedback's been good in general. People are, are happy with the beers that we're putting out and, uh, it's good to have, we have a couple more brewers on, now on staff we have three more that we have on staff now that that are get to brew uh on the two barrel system so holly and i can focus on starting up the 10 and starting up the 100 heck and uh, get all those systems in place that we need to have there to ensure that we have the highest quality product coming out you know it's it um the 10 barrel system that you originally worked on at for budweiser mm -hmm. was that all manual or did that have automation it was a mix. It was uh, similar to what we're going to have here. The brew house was, and I actually didn't um, brew on it in the brew house. I was in the, the filtration cellar and the okay. aging cellar and the fermenting cellar the whole time I was there. Um, the brew house was fairly well automated The um, with a Siemens control system. The starting cellar had some automation in terms of the air injection, the um, aeration skid. I think it was by Esau and Huber. And then it was hoses everywhere else with uh, some automation on the, the temperature control, you know, for the fermenters and the, the chip tanks. 
in a, at Ween's, what, what was the brew house there like? Was it, that? It's actually, it's it a press barrel, uh, which is similar to our two barrel here. So our two barrel here is also Prospero. Um, so very manual. It does have a little con, uh, control s- screen just for temperatures and stuff like that in the brew house, but it's all manual valves. There's no automated valves except for the steam valves. So how, how big of a difference was that going from work? Cause they, if I remember that's a 20 barrel system, 15, there? 15 yeah, barrel yeah. going from working on your, would you say 600 barrel uh, systems yeah. and all the way down Six to working on a 15 barrel was, system? Yeah, it was completely different. You know, if you just think about what you're used to in terms of yeast handling at, uh, at a big production brewery is totally different than yeast handling at a small brewery. And that's probably the biggest challenge that and trying to figure out how to manage the microbiology in terms of ensuring that you don't have any micro contamination, um, consistency, you know, if you're making beer on a, one of these big production breweries, even like what we're going to have here, the work coming out is, is very consistent. So it's not only consistent in terms of the OG, but also the RGF, the degree of uh, fermentability. And so your product is, is consistent. Just you have a leg up basically. So on the other hand, it is a lot less flexible on those big systems. Um, so if you want to do something a little out of the box, like for what the Budweiser, one of these big brewery production breweries would do, it's hard to do things like dry hop or whirlpool hopping or hot backs or something like that, you know, or God forget kettle souring, you know, how (laughs) would you do that unless you design it into the system? Oh, so it's more of just like an assembly line type of a arrangement, I guess. Well, it's, it's automated, so yeah. it's hard piped and automated and you don't have the flexibility of, of hosing things over or have additional valves. Okay. So I wouldn't, you know, probably not as much of an assembly line as just making sure that you're, you're consistent. Okay. So then what was the, what was the size of the system at stone? Um, in Richmond, we put in a, a 300 hectoliter, 250 barrel. Okay. So it's pretty good size. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny, like the, if you graft it out, you're like huge, tiny, big. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. It was a, a fairly sophisticated system we put in there too. It was the brew house was, had a high level of automation. And then the, the cellar was fairly well automated with a few manual connections. We tried to minimize the number of hoses and stuff that we would have just to, to try to make sure that we were efficient and, uh, consistent. So now here on the two barrel system, do you feel like you're back in your homebrew days? Not <laughs> comparatively, almost, <laughs> almost, but not quite. It's more like uh, being back at the pilot system that we had. It. We had a one barrel pilot system at Weens, okay. which was, um, this is kind of between that and uh, the 15 barrel that we had there. So you said there will be three different brew houses here. Mm-hmm. The two, the 10, is that 10 barrel, 10 hectoliter? 10 okay. barrel. Okay. 10 yeah. barrel and then the 100 hectoliter. Correct. Um, so the, the two barrel system, if I understand correctly, that's the one you'll just, you get to play on that one for the most part, you guys for experimentation and yeah, just trying that's, out. that's what we're doing now is we're, we're kind of playing around with it and it's remains to be seen whether or not we're going to keep it here. Or we're going to move it back to, to Chicago. Okay. Um, it kind of, you know, we can play on the, the 10 barrel system just as easy as we could on the two. Okay. Um, and then still have, you know, still be able to put out a little more beer. We don't get a lot of beer out of it. It's the same amount of work to do two barrels that it is 10. 
although it is nice to, you know, only invest a little bit of time or into two barrels instead of investing that same amount of time into 10 if, if something goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah. What's in Chicago? Uh, that's where our uh, plane field is where we have our uh, Diageo has a production facility there. Okay. And so we have a lab back there, a commercialization lab uh, that has a brewery. And uh, it's uh, someplace where we can do research. We have a big research facility there where we can do we can do a lot of fun things and it, you know, it might make more sense to have it back there or we can play on some stuff back there. We have, uh, some brewers that work back there as well. Okay. Um, and then the 10 barrel system. so I guess that that will also be used for experimentation mm-hmm. and then that's what will feed the, um, tap room here. Correct. Yeah. So we have, we'll have some of the stuff that we're going to make on the hundred heck, um, that will go into the tap room. You know, blonde is one for sure. But we talked about whether or not we want to have a couple more beers, maybe three more that we make on the 100 heck um, to supply the tap room. But also, you know, if we can get it into local market, that'd be awesome. Uh, but primarily the tap room will be supplied by the 10 barrel. So it'd be mainly Guinness Blonde. What are the other large brands that'll be brewed here? That's what we're working on. Okay. Yeah. We don't have any concrete plans yet, but, you know. At least nothing we can share. Gotcha. <laughs> but uh, I, th- I think I've read definitively, though, that, that stout or anything, that none of those will be brewed here. We won't make the Guinness Draft, no, or Antwerpen or West Indies Porter or something like that. But that's not to say that we wouldn't make a stout. Okay. Uh, it just wouldn't be the same stouts that we make in Dublin. Gotcha. And so speaking of Dublin, you've, you've gotten to work quite a bit with the team mm-hmm. over there, right? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I took one trip last summer for a couple of weeks and then Holly and I went over, um, in December, uh, we were over there for a week. We got to brew a milk stout with them over there. It was fun. Oh, cool. Um, in their open gates yeah, facility, in the open gate over there. And then they came over here last week, actually. Um, so we're doing a collaboration with them. Uh, if you can call it a collaboration when it's internal, yeah. uh, we're doing one, a seaside stout, I think is what we're going to call it. So it's, it has some crab seasoning some season seasoning inspired by some of the crab seasoning. So they came over last week and, and a little bit of sea salt as well. They came over last week and brewed that with us. So we're going to release that for St. Patty's day. Um, and they're brewing one over there, which is also a seaside stout where they have some, some Irish ingredients and a little bit of sea salt. Cool. Yeah. When I was there in, I think it was 2009. So that, cause that, the open gate area is open to the public now, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, when when I was there, that wasn't public facing because it had it was in use that long ago, right? Yeah, or, it's yeah we've had that facility as a pilot system, uh, you know, similar to what we had at Bud for you know as long as I as long as I know, you know, at least yeah. fifty years in its current state. I think it's something like fifty years. I could be way off on the date, but Guinness has always had a uh, innovation brewery. Yeah, I think it just when I was there, it wasn't open to mm-hmm. the public yet. Yeah, they added uh, the tap room portion um, since then. Don't, I'm not sure exactly the date that they added the tap room portion, but it is open. There's, I think it's Thursday through Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. How large is the brew house there? I That's going to be 10. enormous, right? Oh, the, uh, the pilot like, yeah, system. The... Pilot system is ten hectoliters, and the uh, the main brew house four. Um, I'm not sure exactly how big it is. But it's somewhere, you know, 600 hectoliter range, something like that. Yeah, because I saw the 
the pictures posted on social media from mm-hmm. when you guys were visiting and it just looked humongous. Yeah. Cause that's a, while that's, um, the tour of the, of St. James gate's amazing, but you don't get to actually see the, the actual brew house or anything. It's more of like a yeah, museum it's, it's walkthrough the, or a, actually more of like a playground. Cause it's so amazing. It's uh yeah, it's on the other side of the street. And so, uh, the storehouse is closer to where the roast house is. And then if you go um, closer to the river is where Brewhouse 4 is. So, so far, what has been the most uh, surprising or most interesting thing you've learned starting working for Guinness? Uh, most interesting thing working for Guinness. I think it's probably the yeast. Just trying to figure out, you know, we have this old yeast strain. Um and it's quirky <laughs> and um it's probably not unlike in its unique characteristic it's not unlike some of the the strains that other breweries have that have historic yeast like budweiser has their historic yeast but this one's even older you know it goes back 259 years um and what we do is we have our our stout yeast and we have guinness blonde yeast which is is related to stout yeast but it's it's a little different um, and then just trying to figure out exactly how, what we can do in terms of managing it, the yeast and managing the brewing process to get different flavors out of it, which is, is a lot of fun. And then also, um, just other yeast that we have in our system and, and being able to play with those, you know, some of the Smitic stuff and, and harp has been a lot of fun. So is the Guinness yeast used on all Guinness products or... Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the stuff that we do in, in the open gate, there's going to be some other yeast that we use. We do use some commercial yeast, um, you know, because we don't, at the moment, we don't have a Belgian strain. So we use, uh, commercial yeast for our Belgian beers that we make. Uh, we do have a yeast bank both here from our Seagram days and we have a yeast bank in Dublin. Um, you know, as you, you operate a brewery for 259 years, you start to isolate different yeasts from different parts of the brewery, um, especially with our heritage of barrel aging and the yeast that would come in on barrels and different micro flora that would come in on the barrels. Uh, we could isolate those, so we have those, and that's something that we get to play with. Haven't yet, but we're it's in the works. Do you? How closely do you work with the team in Dublin? Is there is there a lot of... Yeah, working we, with them, or are you pretty autonomous here? We we consider our the Open Gate team. We consider ourselves to be one team, um, so we try to communicate as much as we can, and we're escalating that a little bit, increasing our communication to at least weekly, um, so that we can out we can have a plan, and if we want to work on some kind of an innovation thing, uh, either for this market or for their market, um, we want to make sure that we're not both working on exactly yeah. the same kind of thing. But we can also learn a lot from them and they can learn a lot from us, you know, because they, they do have some resources and, and their market is different. The UK market and the Irish market is, is totally different than the U.S. beer market. Um, and so we can learn about theirs and they can learn about us. We can learn about the history of Guinness, the heritage of Guinness. We can learn a lot about the Guinness yeast like I talked about. Um, and then they can also learn a little bit about the, the U.S. market and how different it is in terms of the hot forward beers and all those sort of things that we're playing with over here. Has that reached Ireland at all? Oh, for Is sure. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's it's probably pretty recent to go into other parts of the world, but when I got to go to um, 
craft brewers event in that led up to the brow so that would have been 2015 i think anyway um i got to meet some some craft brewers from russia some from from uh latvia you know all over europe that's probably one of the last places i would think of craft brewers existing yeah so it was it was kind of a neat story because i was i was down in in nuremberg for the for the brow and walking around i got there ahead of time because i flew out to go to berlin for the first um some of the first batches we brewed on the pilot system in stone berlin and took the train down to nuremberg ahead of mitch he got there he spoke at the conference is why we got to go um and i was in a a little bar little brewery in the old part of nuremberg and sat down next to a guy and started talking to him and he was a craft brewer from moscow (laughs) and then uh which, which was pretty cool. And then Ashton Lewis came in um, and sat down next to me. And then so I was like, oh, you know, I got to talk to him. And uh, at the time he was at, with Mueller Company. And uh, it was good to catch up with him for sure. So do you have, is there anything planned or coming up soon that you can talk about uh, that people should be excited for? Um, we have a lot of stuff coming up. And other than opening, hopefully, this summer, you know, where I don't, know exactly the date we we're going to open but it should be sometime in july august for our full consumer experience at the tap room so that's exciting in terms of of beers that we're going to put out we have uh we have some some beer brewed in ireland that's sitting in bourbon barrels um and then we have uh we have some other barrels that we're gonna we have some other brands that we've brewed here that we put into whiskey barrels or bourbon barrels so we have some of that stuff coming we have um we're going to get some more of the Antwerpen that was aged in, in Dublin in bourbon barrels. We're going to get some more of that on tap within the next That's three weeks. That's a really good stout. Uh, yeah. I, when I got to try that, I, was, I really liked Antwerpen. That was a good one. Did you have the barrel aged? No. Unfortunately, only just the regular. Um, I think it was just from a bottle. I don't even think I've had it on draft. Ooh. <clears throat> we have it on draft now in our tap room, which oh, is cool. exciting. And we pretty sure we still have four and extra stout on tap as well. I did have some of that on tap. So that was have, really good. And then in after um, St. Pat's, at some point we'll have the barrel-aged stout, the Antwerpen, will be on tap again. Um, we have a few other things that we're working on. We have in the tank right now a Belgian stout, so it's a stout brewed with uh, some Abbey yeast. We have uh, Crosslands this weekend. Uh, we released that yesterday, so that was a uh, uh, it's our series of what I want to do is I want to on the full experience I want to have one tap panel that always features local ingredients and so we're calling that the Crosslands which is a kind of a nod to the the flag of Maryland um, this one had it's a pale ale with um, black locust cascade hops and dark cloud base two row and Munich and uh, we put that on tap yesterday so we're gonna have a little release event for that today uh, it's a pretty tasty little pale ale um, what else have we got in the works? It's about it that I can think of at the moment. So along the lines of Crosslands, how, um, how important is it to you to like embrace the being part of Maryland? Cause it seems like this brewery definitely does. Yeah. It's, it's something that, you know, I really saw that we did in Richmond and I think it's really important and, you know, both from a, if you just think about how where your where your food comes from or where your ingredients come from where your raw materials come from as as much as we can help that 
to get that more local, the better. Uh, but then not only that, but just to be a part of the community, the part of the beer community and part of the, the community in general. Um, we do a fair amount of that here, you know, uh, in terms of charitable organizations and, and being involved with, with um, donations to those and even, you know, volunteering and stuff like that. So I think it's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's a, a really big part of it, you know. Try to not only just, not only hire local people, which we have hired mostly local people, but we also want to be part of that you know, part of that community, part of the beer community, and part of the, you know, the agricultural community. In fact, recently, um, someone from uh, the East Coast crap capital of craft beer, Frederick, Maryland, started working for you. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, we had we hired on Todd, which is a, he's a, a local guy, so we hired him as a brewer. Which you know, we're really happy with him. He's a he brings a lot to the table, a lot of good experience from his time out there, and also time down at Dogfish. Um, also a UC Davis guy, he okay. got, his, got his brewing education there. So that's important to me. <laughs> and, um, you guys have, uh, you've already done some collaborations with, uh, local breweries in the area, correct? Well, yeah, we've done, uh, we've done one with the local brewery. So we did heavy seas. Um, so that was, we, was it, we call it a home and away. So we did a beer here, they did a beer there. So that was our first one that we did with the local. So we're, we're starting to line up who's going to be next. We're little, uh, little busy at the moment so we're, yeah. we're probably going to take a break um until we get the 10 barrel up and then we'll look to do something with somebody else local we did one also with um uh because cbc is going to be in nashville so we did one with a nashville brewery okay um so if you go to cbc look for that one tennessee brew works we did a beer with them uh that'll be a lot of fun age that in a whiskey barrel so it'll be it'll be delicious cool um other than what you're brewing here, what's your favorite or one of your favorite Maryland beers? I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> um, and I can't, you know, I can't just pick one, right? But uh, That's why it's one of. <laughs> you, you obviously love all of them. But yeah, there's, I've been very impressed with all the beers in Maryland. Uh, I'll tell you the last Maryland beer I had, which is I went over to Heavy Seas last night. I had the gold. And it's been very, it was really good. You know, their beers are always great. I love their beers. Um, but like I said, all the ones that I've had here have been really good. What was your favorite beer uh, when you worked at Stone, that Stone makes? Favorite Stone beer? Um, it kind of changed, to be honest with you. It was, uh, when I first started, I would have said Enjoy By. Uh, that was, you know, it still is an amazing beer. Uh, Stone IPA is an amazing beer. Ruination also. Um, but then, you know, delicious when we came out with that one, that was my favorite for a little while. So I kind of rotated. I tend to do that where, okay. you know, <laughs> I love Ruin 10. Ruin so 10. Good. Yeah. Ruin 10. That definitely was my wife's favorite. And Lucky Bastard. That was really good too. Yeah. That one. And what was, that was like a blend of arrogant and some, was it arrogant and double blended together? Or so? It was some sort of. I believe arrogant oak aged and that's double. what it was. Yeah. yeah. That was a really good beer. Yeah. That's cause you didn't have to make it. <laughs> oh, was it difficult? <laughs> the blending process is always, okay. can be tricky. Yeah. What, what aspects of it just to just to get a good, yeah. Scheduling, coordinating. Okay. Just the actually, logistical nightmare doing it. Yeah. So here we'll, um, will you be canning bottling or both one yes. or the other? Yep. Yeah, so we have we have a can line, we have a bottle line, we have a second bottle line. So we have the ability to do some small scale stuff if we want to 
I don't know if we'll be able to do cork and cage, but something on that scale, uh, 500-750s. And then also we have our um, the full range of products that we can put out in a can line and a bottle line for, for primarily for Guinness Blonde. When will you have your first um, New, in, New England IPA can release? <laughs> that one will be tricky because we don't <laughs> have uh, we don't have a big we don't have a, a we have a big can line we don't have a small can oh. line so <laughs> can of New England IPA yeah we'd have to bring in a mobile canner or something to do <laughs> that which is not out of the question yeah so what is um, the so far what's the best thing about working for Guinness for you? It's the being able to participate in the innovation that we're doing. Um, is my when I started, I thought it was going to be building another brewery, but it's really been the innovation piece, uh, which is something that I haven't had since I was at Wien's. Um, and uh, getting to work with Holly has been a, a blast. She's super smart and super talented, and uh, we work together at Stone. And I was really bummed when she left Stone to go to, to Highland uh, because she was going to go to Richmond and we were going to work together out there. So being reunited with her has been amazing. She's, uh, like I said, she's super talented, super smart, really, really good at uh, innovations and new beers and new uh, new ideas, fresh ideas. So that's probably the my most favorite thing is just working with her. And then now that we have, uh, we have Jonathan, we have Todd, we have Sean. Uh, the new brewers that we've hired working with them has been a lot of fun. How large of a team do you plan on having? Um, we'll have at least three more. So it's pretty small in, in the grand scheme of things in terms of, of the, the brewing world, but, uh, you know, eight to ten people to start with. Okay. What What's your favorite style of beer? At the moment, I'm kind of going back on, my, uh, on a lager kick right now. Um, and uh, if you would ask me two months ago, I probably would have said IPA. Uh, IPA was my favorite style for a long time. I still have IPAs in my fridge, but uh, I would guess I ain't working at Stone. You kind of have yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but uh, you know, I made in my career. I've, if you put all the beer I've ever made in a giant bucket, it would be mostly lagers with you know just a couple drops of IPA. Oh. If you think about it that yeah. way, so I do like lagers. Yeah, it's funny how and I. I can't remember who else we had talked about where brewing has kind of gone for full circle back to like so many places have started to make the classic styles of beers. Like you see more and more places coming out with a new Pilsner or a new Kolsch or mm -hmm. new lagers. It's, it's a weird Renaissance kind of compared to the, the other current trends. Sure. Yeah. You know, when you think about, just beer in general. So if you took uh, one of these breweries over in Germany that's family-owned, traditional, been been making beer for 300 years, a small system, 80 to 100 hectoliters, picked them up and put them in Baltimore, they'd be a craft brewer, right? But <laughs> they're just a traditional German brewer over there. And uh, they're kind of going out and what they're realizing is they're making more IPAs, you know, they're making more of the beers that we're kind of making and we started off over here in the craft beer world of of making beers that were more traditional english and, and german beers and now we're kind of going back to making some more of those again so it's it's a neat cycle it's fun for as a brewer as a consumer it's, it's a lot of fun because there's certain occasions where not very many but there are certain occasions where an ipa 
isn't what you want to drink, you know, and so to have the option to have a good, nice, refreshing lager, um, I like that, you know. Will you be doing any kind of souring here? Potentially. Okay. Yeah, potentially. We um, we got to get everything set up first, you know, because there is there's the risk of doing yeah. sours, but we will have some that are... Um, if you want to think about a traditional full sour program, that's a ways off, but we will have some other, we'll have some other ways to get some sours out. Yeah, for sure. So is barreling will be a, a very large part of what's done here. Correct. I yeah, mean, I guess correct. it's right in the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, correct. We, we have being part of Diageo, we have access to a lot of barrels, um, which is fun. So we have a lot of different spirits that we can put beer into. We know if you think about, Bourbon is the easiest one for us to get because you can only use bourbon barrels once for bourbon. Um, But, you know, here on site, we have where we're aging a lot of rum. So we do have some rum barrels that we could play with if we wanted to. And then the Johnny Walker and other Scotch whiskey brands are huge over across the pond. You know, if we could get our hands on some of those, that would be, we could make some amazing beers. Well, I want to thank you for, uh, spending some of your precious time with me i know you're you're extremely busy you're welcome um and thank you everyone for uh watching and listening the uncapped podcast is produced by graham cohen and me chris sands be sure to like us on facebook and if you've enjoyed these podcasts please leave us a review on google play or the itunes store a special thanks to double motorcycle for providing our theme music thanks for listening